5% of all UFO sightings can be immediately identified. It's the 5% that give you the release. Pilots chase them sometimes, but can't catch them. There are near misses between these things and commercial aircraft. And you saw the disc uh, of it. These are very hard to dismiss, the, the handful of sightings. A UFO in broad daylight near Paris. We suddenly observed a very bright red-orange object. It was oval. UFOs have interfered with missiles. I saw something that defied logic. Reported a strange craft, triangular in shape. On the triangular shape craft. Mystery craft being seen. Dark metallic in appearance. Flying craft. There's an orange orb. Glowing orb. A glowing orb. A giant ball of light. Glowing object. Could be aliens. Some form of alien spacecraft. In 1977, there was the Calaris UFO incident in Brazil, and this is the amazing account of an island that was actually attacked by UFOs shooting harmful beams of radioactive light at the residents, as this video shows. It is October 2nd, 1997. Retired Air Force Captain Yorange Holanda is in his expensive home in Cabo Frio, Brazil. The former pilot and parachutist retired in 1992, but since then has struggled with illness. Captain Holanda had been suffering a chronic depressive disorder since the early 1990s. In my personal view, this depressive process originated from something that he had experienced a long time ago in the Amazon. Later that night, his daughter climbs the steps to her father's room. She finds a shocking scene. Her father is dead. He appears to have strangled himself. Was this a suicide brought on by mental illness or by something more sinister? Just two months earlier, the captain had given this exclusive interview to UFO researchers A.J. Javierd and Marco Petit. Both men study and document UFO incidents. This object went to Calaris, then kept going as if it covered the Amazon in strips. There was an intelligence doing this. Four months into the operation, they ordered us to stop. Some UFO experts maintain that Captain Hollanda did not kill himself, but was murdered because he'd said too much about a series of frightening UFO encounters, some allegedly fatal, which took place in the Amazon jungle 20 years earlier. He gave eyewitness testimony based on his work as a military man who commanded one of the most serious operations in the world of ufology. There is something very strange that the Air Force doesn't want revealed. 
I don't believe it was suicide. Holanda's death is connected to something beyond the normal. He left a very clear message that we are being visited. In 1977, the Malbouf incident in Canada, and this is where Florida Malbouf, a 58-year-old woman, reported seeing a UFO and two extraterrestrials on the roof of the house in front of her home. In 1978, we also had the Immelsen abduction in Poland, and this is the account where a man in Immelsen, Poland, is said to have been abducted by greys, quote-unquote. There is now actually a memorial at the site. In 1978, the Valentich disappearance in Australia was occurring and this is where an Australian pilot contacted air traffic control and reported sighting a UFO just before his aircraft vanished as this video shows. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known traffic. Uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, there seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000. Says just over halfway through his flight, the Lettic had been in contact with a flight service center on the ground. Evidence mounted that something was not quite right. The following recreation is based on the transcript of Atlantic's exchange with an air traffic controller. It seems to be like some sort of landing lights. As it gets closer, it's... it could be one or two lights, I don't know. Now, when this is Delta Sierra Juliet, that aircraft's just passed over me at least a thousand feet above. Roger, and it, it is a large aircraft, confirm. Uh, unknown due to the speed at which it was travelling. Is there any Air Force aircraft in this vicinity? Delta Sierra Juliet, no known aircraft in the vicinity. Uh, Delta Sierra Juliet, seems though he's playing some sort of game up here. Um, He's travelling over at me at two and three times at speeds I cannot identify. Can you describe the uh, aircraft? As it passes by, it's a long shape. He wasn't to the point where he was panicking, but uh, he was genuinely concerned. Um, by what he saw, you know, he with what he saw, uh, he was he was worried. He sounded confused. Then, as he described what the aircraft was doing, you know, I became a little bit concerned too. This thing's just stationary. What I'm doing now is orbiting, and this thing's just orbiting on top of me. shiny all over. It's just disappeared. But when you wouldn't know what sort of aircraft I've got up here, would you? Is this some sort of military aircraft or what? Is the aircraft still with you? Delta Sierra Juliet. Now approaching from southwest. Set on 2324, this thing's just coughing. Delta Sierra Juliet. Melvin, this strange aircraft's just hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's 
It's not an aircraft. Suddenly, an unidentifiable clicking noise came over the radio. The sound lasted 17 seconds. Then, silence. Delta Sierra Juliet, this is Melbourne. It's hovering, and it's not an aircraft. These were Frederick Valetic's final haunting words. Words which inevitably led to speculation that the young pilot had encountered a UFO. However, it was nothing more than speculation until a witness came forward with a startling first-hand account. Around the time of Valetic's disappearance, the eyewitness and his family were returning from an afternoon outing when they noticed unusual activity in the sky. The witness has asked that we not reveal his identity. I looked up and I saw this long green light, about a thousand to two thousand feet above the aircraft. So we sat there and watched it for a few seconds. Then the green light got closer to the plane. I said, uh, that plane is coming down pretty steep. I said, on a 45 degree angle. I said, I think it's going to crash. The eyewitness account appeared to support the theory that Valetic had a run-in with a UFO. However, the witness did not actually see the aircraft crash into Bass Strait. The only certainty was that Valetic had vanished. In 1978, we had the Kukura lights in New Zealand, and here a series of sightings was made by a freight plane that reported how the airplane was escorted by strange lights and changed color and size. In 1979 was the Val Johnson incident in Minnesota. A deputy sheriff spotted a bright light which appeared to have collided with his patrol car and damaged it. The deputy also suffered temporary retinal damage from the light that came from the craft. And in 1979 there was the Robert Taylor incident in Scotland. A forester, Bob Taylor, was pulled by two spiked globes towards a UFO which stood on a clearing. He lost consciousness and afterwards had trouble walking and speaking. He also was constantly thirsty for several days and once again there was a strange odor as this video shows. Occasionally there is physical evidence to back up reports of close encounters. On the morning of November the 9th, 1979, forestry worker Bob Taylor walked down this woodland track outside Livingston New Town near Edinburgh. He rounded a corner and was astonished to be confronted by an unearthly object. It was a huge thing with a big round dome, a very dark grey colour, and it had a, a big flange going all the way around. I could see arms sticking out of this flange with what I took to be blades on the top. Later he described what he'd seen to a local newspaper artist who drew this sketch. As I stood here, there was two balls came out, two balls, I'd think they'd be about three feet in diameter with about six spikes. And they were rolling on these spikes. They came right up beside me, and I remember feeling a tug at that time. 
a, a very powerful smell, a choking sort of smell, and that was it. He crawled up this path and staggered home to be met on the doorstep by his bewildered wife. He looked terrible when he came in the door and he just stood at the door and I said, have you had an accident with your lorry? And he said, no, I've been attacked. And I said, what with? And he said, a spaceship. And I said, oh, goodness me, there's no such a thing as a spaceship. I'm going to phone the doctor. You must have fell and hurt your head. He looked quite shocked and he, he was drained, he was right white and his face was dirty and he had a red scar here and uh, his clothes were all dirty and his trousers and then he told me his trousers had been torn. Police station, Bathgate. The police were called and they discovered inexplicable track marks at the scene of the incident. On examining the area I found two track marks approximately 40 holes in the ground. And these are the track marks here and these are the 40 holes. Uh, since then I've photographed the holes. This is a photograph of the hole here. This is the holes that measured approximately three and a half inches. And this other photograph here, you can actually see the trade marks which correspond to the marks here. These markings and tracks were actually inside this area here that's fenced off uh, and there's Definitely no other tracks leading to or from this area. These are the trousers worn by Mr. Taylor. As you can see, they're of fairly heavy material. We have a tear on the left, just below the pocket, and one on the right trouser leg, again just below the pocket. These marks are consistent with the material having been pulled up while the trousers were being worn. Well, I'm pretty certain that that day that I saw a spaceship sitting here. We must accept the story of Mr. Taylor. He is a very highly respected member of the community, a man of high integrity, and not one likely to invent such a story. Then in 1979, Manassas UFO incident in Spain, and here it was reported that three large UFOs actually forced a commercial flight to make an emergency landing at the Manassas Airport in Spain. And then in the 1980s, you have the Hudson Valley UFO sightings in New York. And this is the account where a UFO flap was started during the 80s and continued on for several years. Overall, it involved thousands of reports of similar UFOs from a multitude of people, as this video shows. Dennis Sant, a husband and father of five, has worked in local government for 17 years. He is currently the highest ranking deputy in Putnam County. On March 17, 1983, Sant's home in Brewster was the site of an extraordinary event. object. The structure of it was very dark gray, metallic, almost girder type looking. What is it? Girls! Girls, come on here, see this! The object seemed to be very silent. The lights were iridescent, bright, 
uh, they stood out in the sky in, in three dimension. It looked like a city of lights. It just hung in the sky of all brilliant colors. At that time, the girls became very frightened and, and they ran inside the house. Then my son and I were just drawn underneath it. Felt very good about encountering a visual contact with the object. We followed the object around to the backyard, and at that point, a feeling of fright came upon me. Thoughts started to flood my mind, thoughts of the craft touching ground, thoughts of an encounter with an alien being, thoughts of uh, being abducted, all types of uh, fearful thoughts started to enter into my mind. And it seemed only to be seconds before the object started to move again, uh, but the feelings were overwhelming. From beginning to end, uh, the 19 or 20 minutes that I had viewed that craft was also a time of self-examination of myself and who I was. Dennis Sant and his family were not the only ones mesmerized by the extraordinary light formation. A few miles away, traffic screeched to a halt on Interstate 84 as a mysterious object hovered overhead. Hudson Valley sightings had only just begun. I was uh, sitting there looking at it, and I, I wasn't afraid. I, I was just amazed. I was in awe of it. I didn't know what it was. And, Officer uh, Andy Sadoff, a 10-year veteran of the Newcastle Police, is also an instructor in criminal child abuse procedures. Where did it come from? On March 24th, one week after Dennis Sant's sighting, Officer Sadov was working routine traffic patrol. I was um, working a 4 p.m. to midnight tour and assigned to set up some radar to look for speeding cars. I had the radar set up and I looked up into the sky and saw coming from east to west there was a series of lights. And at first I thought it was a plane. It was quite a distance, quite far away, but it was, it was really quite large. As I recall, there were mostly white lights, but there were green lights also. It was alternating green and white lights. Um, it approached my vehicle, and as it approached the vehicle, it, it stopped, and it seemed to hover. There was no sound, and I'm looking at this thing, like, thinking, what is it? When I put my head out the window and I'm looking up at it, it was huge. The thing that I recall the most is I was amazed that there was no noise. There was no humming, there was no engine, no low sound to it. It was uh, absolutely silent. Just seconds later, the eerie silence was broken. Another eyewitness report. Unit 5 to base, I'm seeing it too, it's hovering above my car. It's heading towards town, I'm following it. At the time that we started to transmit over the air, 
that was about the time that it started to move, and it moved very slowly, um, almost floated, and we followed it. We followed it until it disappeared off into the hills. I guess I was mostly curious as to what it could be, you know, uh, excited to, to, to try and figure out, well, maybe it's this, or maybe it's a government thing, or... But I, I wasn't frightened of it, no. There really wasn't time to be frightened of it. I was spending most of my time trying to figure out why there was no noise coming out of this thing, so. It was truly a flying city, if that's the way you want to call it. I mean, it was huge. Computer engineer Ed Burns is a retired senior manager for IBM. At the time of the sightings, Burns handled the company's contracts in Japan and South America. On the night of March 24th, at virtually the same time Officer Sadoff was pursuing the mysterious object, Ed Burns was driving home on the Taconic Parkway, 10 miles north of Sadoff's location. Out of nowhere, I got a lot of static on the radio. And I thought maybe I was on the wrong number, and then I went over to turn the dial again, and that's when I looked up and saw this craft. It was a triangular chevron ship, and the back of that chevron had to be as large as a football field at least. It was one solid piece of a chevron shape, and there was no noise. It seemed so close to the ground. It seemed like I could have thrown a rock at it, maybe. Ed Burns pulled off the highway and joined a group of motorists by the side of the road. All were gazing skyward, seemingly dumbstruck. It was so shocking. This one fellow that I was talking to never did answer me a bit. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever seen anything so huge? And he was just staring at this thing and I remember his size of his eyes were so huge and he never did answer me at all. I'm, it seemed like I talked for an hour, it was probably only a minute, but I was so excited about it, I wanted to share, share whatever I was uh, feeling at the time. Where was it from? <laughs> I'm not into astronomy. Uh, Mars, I mean, I don't know the solar systems, but what I had witnessed that night was not from this planet. In 1986 was the Japan Airline flight 1628 incident in Alaska. A group of UFOs flew alongside Japan Airlines Flight 1628 for 50 minutes above northeastern Alaska. The objects were not only huge, uh, and notice in the picture the plane for scale, but one of them was actually detected by military radar, as this next video shows. It involved an investigation by the FAA. This is an official government investigation of the sighting itself. The events of that night were captured on tape. Standard 1628 heavy military radar advises they are picking up an intermittent primary target behind you. In trail, in trail, I say here. The Boeing 747 cargo jet is on a routine flight from Paris to Tokyo, cruising at 600 miles per hour at an altitude of 35,000 feet. It heads towards Anchorage, Alaska, to refuel. Suddenly, at 5:11 p.m. Captain Kenju Terauchi, a pilot with 29 years flight experience, sees three large, fast-moving, unidentified objects 2,000 feet below them. 
The largest object is described by Captain Teruchi as resembling, quote, a shelled walnut. Captain Teruchi describes the main craft as being twice the size of an American aircraft carrier. The pilot said it was as solid there as if you were seeing an oncoming jet with its lights on, except it wasn't an oncoming jet. 747 was nothing compared to this big flying saucer. After several minutes of observing the UFO, the pilots realize the objects are now matching their speed, 600 miles per hour, tracking them. The captain reports that the objects begin, quote, making moves that are impossible for any man-made aircraft to perform. Then, without warning, two of the smaller craft suddenly rise and shoot directly in front of the pilot's window. The objects come so close to the airplane that Captain Terauchi says the intense glow makes his face feel warm. All of a sudden they appear and they're traveling right in front of the aircraft. And they were sort of wobbling back and forth as they moved. They seem to be only a, a thousand, maybe two thousand feet in front of the aircraft and traveling at six hundred and some miles an hour. At that very moment, the radio link to Anchorage goes dead, leaving the aircraft flying blind. A horrifying catastrophe is seconds away, but the UFOs rise and veer left. In his official FAA report, Captain Ferrucci says, quote, we had to get away from that object. Jupiter 1628, sir, do you still have the traffic? Uh, disappear, Jupiter Alpha, Jupiter 1628, I understand you do not see the traffic any longer. Okay. Moments later, an urgent message comes in from Almondorf Air Board Base. The unidentified object now appears on their radar. Yeah, that's one that's two. We have to confirm there is a flight size of two around here, 1550 squawk, one primary return only. Okay, where is he following? It looks like he is, yes. Okay, stand by. The phrase flight size of two indicates that JAL 1628 has uninvited guests with possible hostile intentions. Spinner 1628 heavy military radar advises they are picking up intermittent primary target behind you. In trail, in trail, I say here. Immediately after this confirmation, the FAA requests that the Air Force scramble jets. Do you have anybody to scramble up there, or do you want to do that? Oh, we're going to talk to your liaison officer about that. It's starting to concern us that Japan Airlines is taking the 360 now, and it's still falling. Yeah, okay, we're going to call the military desk on this. Although the military desk took no action, JL-1628 was able to land safely in Anchorage at 6.20 p.m. Extensive media coverage from around the world helped make this incident one of the most widely reported UFO cases in history. While the JAL case continues to inspire debate about the nature and intent of the object that tracked the 747, to this day, the case remains a mystery. The Japan Airlines 747 had a saucer go around it. The papers mysteriously disappeared from the FAA office. In 1989 was the Voronzhe UFO sighting in Russia. And these sightings not only included eyewitness accounts of UFO crafts, but also of mysterious nine-foot-tall beings that exited the craft. This event was not only witnessed by a multitude of adults, but school children as well. And the Russian newspapers even carried the story, as this next video shows.
In September of 1989, something happened in the city of Veronezh, 200 miles south of Moscow, which caught the attention of the world press. For several weeks, strange lights were seen over the city. Then on September the 27th, it was reported that a spacecraft landed in one of the city's public parks, from which three alien giant figures emerged. Nothing remotely like this had happened in Veronezh before. Before coming to America in 1990, Ukrainian journalist Paul Stonehill covered the Voronezh story for the international press. Top Voronezh researchers of anomalous phenomena who uh, include scientists, geologists, and uh, also some military people went to the site imme immediately thereafter. They were on the site on the 3rd of October studying and collecting specimens. The encounter became a media sensation on national television and in the international press. Drawings of the landings by children who were there capture the event vividly. It attracted the attention of the media around the world because it was effectively endorsed by TASS, the Soviet news agency who up until that time had certainly not given any credence at all to this kind of story. They had the chance to talk to many eyewitnesses, adults as well as kids, uh, policemen, school teachers, uh, students, scientists, who had uh, witnessed similar or even differently shaped UFOs. The underlying theme was that giant-like beings exited from strange-looking craft, did some research throughout Voronezh, and were able to get back to their craft and fly away. For once we had a genuine large number of people all correlating with one another, describing the appearance of these giants. So it was not a case of you simply believe a witness or you don't. Here you couldn't fail to believe them because there were so many of them talking in concert. I was standing not far from the main road of the South Park and I saw this flying object at an approximate height uh, 200 of 250 meters. It stayed at the same height and did not move horizontally. I was very interested by all that because it could not be any kind of meteorological balloon. There was a squeaking sound. Perhaps some drilling tool was operating, like it was boring a hole in the ground. The creatures started coming out. They did not look too much like humans. They were much taller than humans. They did have shoulders, but they didn't see the head. He was huge, really huge, bigger than we are. He was a mighty figure. In 1989, Sergei Makarov was one of the schoolchildren who was in the Voronezh Park. I remember a crowd that gathered around the place. Everybody was scared. Everybody turned pale. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Denis Borzhenko was also one of the boys in the park on that day in September 1989. I saw some traces there, and also a strange man, outwardly, he looked like any other man, 
Only he was huge. A moment later, he suddenly disappeared. I had no doubt that the UFO and the giants existed, because I saw them. But sometimes when I look back, it seems sort of like a fairy tale. And in 1989 and 1990, we had the Belgian UFO wave, of course, in Belgium. And this series of sightings lasted from 1989 into the 90s with a massive amount of eyewitness accounts on the very first night. The unknown objects were tracked on radar by the Belgian Air Force and described as black triangles with bright lights that would change color. The Belgian Air Force still offers no explanation for the objects even though photographic evidence exists as this next video shows. Belgian UFO sightings were in the late 1980s. They continued into the 1990s. We've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle, a mysterious region over the Atlantic Ocean where ships and planes have been said to simply disappear. Well, welcome to the Belgian Triangle, where a huge object suddenly appeared in the sky. Belgium is such a small little country, and you can imagine that um, in this small little country, hundreds of people seeing this enormous triangular object. Filmmaker James Fox has studied UFO sightings for many years. There was a very large, extremely large triangular shaped craft that could uh, maneuver silently in the night sky, very slow, very low. The Belgian craft was witnessed by, by hundreds of people, including police officers. With something that large hanging over them, the Belgians didn't waffle. They sent in military jets. They scrambled the F-16 jets. They locked the radar on it. It showed up triangular on their radar. But every time the F-16 jets would close in on it, the object would just completely outperform them and it was gone. So couldn't get close to it. The object dropped from 10,000 feet to 500 feet in a few seconds. Wow. That's not like, you know, uh, super technology. That's Star Trek. Perhaps the answer lies in this photo. There was a pretty impressive photograph taken of the craft that was analyzed, and you can actually see structure in between the lights. The picture that was made available to the media was enhanced by photographic computer techniques. But it's basically what the witness saw and what the witness described. Yes, that was probably one of the better UFO pictures that show structure. So, just what was that giant triangle? Investigator Phil Embrogno decided to trek on over to Belgium to find out for himself. I talked to the witnesses who saw the object that night. I can tell you that they were telling the truth from my point of view. And um, once again, we see over the years the UFOs are becoming less and less shy and they're showing themselves to more and more individuals. 1990, we have the Montreal UFO incident in Canada, and this is the account where more than 40 witnesses, including police, observed a UFO above downtown Montreal for more than three hours. In 1991, we have the Space Shuttle Discovery incident, and a video was taken during that mission, STS-48, and it shows a flash of light and several objects that appear to be flying in an artificial or controlled fashion. NASA explained objects as ice particles reacting to engine jets. However, researchers analyzed the movements of the objects and found five arguments that the footage could not depict ice articles. Also, the flash of light that preceded the abrupt change in the course of the objects was analyzed, and it was concluded that the exhaust plume from one of the shuttle's reaction control system rockets could not have produced the flash of light. The objects appeared to have a definite structure consisting of three lobes arranged in a triangular pattern 
as this raw footage without audio shows. Then in 1993, we have the Kelly Cahill incident in Australia. East of Melbourne's uh, Danandong uh, foothills, Kelly Cahill and five others observed a flying saucer that appeared shortly after midnight. They were also confronted by tall, slim, black aliens with glowing red eyes, as this video shows. Kelly Carr was a mother and housewife with no interest in spaceships or aliens. Now she's using technology to reconstruct images of her own encounter. Sort of it does a, give the idea of the lights there, but you know, the, the brightness of the light, it gives a good impression, except that the colour doesn't seem right. Kelly's account starts in August 1993. My husband and I were driving up to my girlfriend's place uh, in Mombok, which is in the Dandenong Mountains. We were driving on Belgrave Hallam Road, and it was just on dusk. I saw what I thought was round orange lights in the field. It looked unusual to me. Later that night, retracing their route home, Kelly noticed something else unusual. It's about a, a kilometre or so in front of us, uh, about twice the height of the treetops, we could see this um, uh, object, which at first I thought was a blimp. It had the shape of a blimp, but it was light. As we got closer to it, the, the light seemed to sort of separate, and it was actually these uh, a row of round lights, uh, and they were orange. It appeared like there were silhouettes standing in these round orange circles, like people, but you could only see the black outline. Well, I just said to my husband, look, there's people in there. And the minute I said that, it shot off to the left of us. Within one or two seconds, it was gone completely. About a, a kilometre uh, or two further down the road, as we kept driving, I came across what, uh, at least what I thought, was a screen or a wall of light across the road. And my heart started racing and the adrenaline was sort of pumping through my body and I'm thinking, we've just seen this back down there, we're, we're in for, you know, a close encounter. Then the next instant, nothing. We seem to have um, actually covered a fair distance that I don't even remember covering. It might have been possibly close to a kilometre that I don't remember uh, actually travelling. <clears throat> there was no light, there was, you know, there was nothing blocking the road. Kelly says it wasn't until weeks later she remembered actually getting out of the car that night. And I saw that there was a, um, uh, another car that had pulled up a hundred metres down the road. Then I walked around the front of the car to where my husband was standing on the other side 
and uh, we started walking across the road together. As we were walking across the road, I looked down and I saw that the other people were getting out of the car and starting to walk as well. So I was quite happy that there was other people there who were seeing the same thing that we were. And we walked up along here to, to um, where the fence is. Right out in front of us was this, this huge craft. I was totally awestruck, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was science fiction coming to life. There wasn't any fear then, it was just all, total awe. We stood here, I guess side by side, my husband and I, for about 30 to 45 seconds. Then this tall dark being just appeared in front of the craft and, and he was followed by about another seven or eight that appeared straight behind him. I felt this energy go through me. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before in my life. It was like some sort of low level frequency that came in waves, but it was so dense that I could actually physically feel it going through my body. And that feeling absolutely terrified me. It was like, uh, I can't even explain the horror that I felt just feeling this. And um, I uh, began screaming. The minute I did, the eyes on these things lit up and they came charging across the field. Halfway across, they split up into two groups. Some headed off down there and the rest came directly towards us. I felt this blow to my stomach and the next thing you know, I'm back here somewhere on the grass. It literally lifted me off of my feet. And I thought I was going to die. I thought if I don't get up now, I'm never going to... I'm going to pass out and I'm going to die. I'm not going to come back to consciousness, you know. So I pulled myself up into a sitting position and when I sat up, I couldn't see anything. And uh, it was like there was just black in front of my eyes. I want you to try stretching it down a little bit as well. Kelly is not the only one who saw these images that night. For the first time ever, independent witnesses have given the same account of a close encounter. Even though Kelly has never met Jane, Glenda and Bill from the other car she saw, she has seen the sketches they drew for UFO researchers. They've drawn the same um, circles of light around the top of the craft with um, this, uh, these blue lines coming down ending in a semi-circle uh, on the ground. They've actually also drawn a tripod underneath, which was something I didn't see that night. It comes very clear then that we were all looking at the same thing and that it wasn't your average um, saucer-shaped uh, craft. And basically, the second party were able to draw sketches of the beings very similar to the ones that I had, and they're not your usual um, little grey things that are, you know, media propaganda. I found a small red-coloured uh, equilateral triangle underneath my navel, which I guess in reality provoked um, only a minor curiosity at the time. Uh, it was oddly geometric, and I did, I did wonder, you know, how, how something like that could get on me uh, that looked like a boon without me feeling it. At UFO conferences where Kelly is now a keynote speaker, she adds strength to her own story by showing photographs of physical marks left on one of the other women. We're all left with triangular marks under our navels, but um, the ones that were, the marks that were actually photographed, the first one came from Glenda, which is a, uh, it's a series of three small red dots along the inner thigh, and both Jane and Glenda um, were marked with these dots. I wasn't. Glenda had a, uh, a ligature mark around her ankle, which is quite severe bruising. Um, it looked like she'd been strapped down to something. 
UFO researchers have also reported finding physical traces of the site where all witnesses said the encounter happened, particularly in relation to where the craft landed. Inside that semicircle was actually a, um, a triangular formation of three points spaced six metres apart, which correspond with the tripod that was um, drawn underneath the, the girls' craft. To this day, Kelly still doesn't know exactly what happened to her that night. Her most vivid memory is the fear that she felt. That's very good. It's finally come out to what I'm looking for. And I think a lot of people, you know, might have experienced the fear in a nightmare when you're being chased or something like that, and it's a terror that you feel that, you know, sometimes can wake you up or whatever, but it's absolutely horrifying when you're dreaming it. And that's exactly what I was feeling while I was totally awake. That sort of terror, actually having to feel it, while you're um, conscious and physically awake and feel it as a reality is um, like a living nightmare, like, like a nightmare that comes to life. And in 1994 was the Meng Zhao incident in China. Meng Zhao claimed to have been abducted and forced to have intercourse with a 10-foot tall, six-fingered female alien with braided leg fur. In 1996, they had the Virginia uh, UFO incident in Brazil, and this is the account where not only were multiple sightings made of a UFO, but there was an alleged capture of aliens, as this next video shows. The Virginia case is probably the best, well-documented case that we have in Brazil and probably in the world. You know that over 80 witnesses came forward, first-hand witnesses came forward during the first weeks, and they are still coming after it happened. During all these years, we still keep getting witnesses that come forward and tell us pieces of the big story that we know that in comprises the capture of at least two alien creatures in the city of Virginia. We know for a fact, because we have it all documented, plus the witnesses have confirmed and cross-confirmed that one alien was captured in the morning of that day, which was a Saturday, about 10.30, by a fire department and uh, some personnel from the army. Another creature was seen at the same day by middle afternoon by three girls. It was them who called attention of all the city to the fact that strange creatures have been seen. Because when the first one was seen and captured in the morning, it didn't draw too much attention. But at the afternoon, when the girls saw another creature and then spread the word to everybody, we saw the devil, that's what they thought they saw. That night of the Saturday, January 20, 1996, that second creature, probably the same one saw by the girls, was also captured by a police troop, a police car, actually a military police car with two policemen inside. The one who was sitting in a passenger seat was Marco Elixerezi, and he was lucky enough to be the one who spotted the creature and grabbed it with his own bare arms, bare hands, got back to the car, put the creature in his lap, and took it to the hospital. 25 days after that, he died on February 15 of some bacteria attacks, proving that his immune deficiency system was absolutely destroyed and the uh, army personnel and authorities kept it all secret 
for lots of time until the UFO researchers started protesting along with the press and we did so much pressure that eventually information was released. In 1996 was the Space Shuttle Columbia incident and this time another video surfaced, this time taken from the mission STS-80 of Space Shuttle Columbia while it was in orbit. And the video was analyzed and it showed different unusual phenomena including a number of fast moving objects near the shuttle that appear as bright streaks and two slow moving circular objects. One comes into view from the left and then remains stationary while the other one appears out of thin air and moves off to the right as seen in this next raw footage also without audio. Then in 1997, we had the Phoenix Lights incident in Arizona, and here we had the lights of varying descriptions, most notably a V-shaped pattern, were seen by thousands of people for about three hours in a space about 300 miles from the Nevada line through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson, as this video shows. Let's take a look. The case of the Phoenix Lights began on an evening in March of 1997. Late breaking. You're watching News 15 at 10. Do these lights belong to visitors from outer space? Hundreds of people across the valley think it's a distinct possibility. Good evening. I'm Mark Bailey. And I'm Robin Sewell. Thanks for joining us. We start tonight with those strange dots of light that were the talk of the town. Tonight As reported, multiple UFOs were sighted throughout the Phoenix Basin. Numerous eyewitnesses were already outside looking up into the night sky to catch a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp comet. Michael Tanner is part of a team of investigators who received roughly 800 reports from eyewitnesses regarding the Phoenix incident. Between 8.15 and 8.45 we had 
enormous craft at varying altitudes come right through the center of the Valley of Phoenix, uh, led by a formation of orbs that were clearly visible through most of the state. It passed right in front of us, uh, just about uh, right above eye's length. My estimate of the size of the craft from the noses it passed us where we lived to the end of the left wing that passed in front of us was over 5,000 foot long. It's coming across the sky, and as it's moving, it's blocking and unblocking the stars. There is actually a shape. It was actually five lights that were a V, one in front two, and two on each side, and it was perfect. It was a perfect triangle. The object we saw, if we opened up a newspaper, you could not block out the object that we saw. People say, Mike, now you saw a B-2 bomber. My response was, we could land all 40 of our B-2 bombers on the wing of that craft. He says, you're not going to believe what I saw. And I said, yes, I would. I said, that's all that's been on the news all night long is this, this craft. Explanations have been tossed about that there were flares, that there were planes flying in formation. But Mark and Robin, we checked with the FAA today, we checked with Sky Harbor, and we checked with Luke Air Force Base, and there's been no official explanation of those strange bright lights last night. Truck driver Bill Greiner was driving south on I-17 towards Luke Air Force Base. He witnessed several fighter jets scramble to intercept two UFOs directly overhead. I pulled my truck uh, alongside the west silos, which faces Luke Air Force's base, was like right there. And I was here unloading. Everything was completely quiet. It was like really eerie. There was one right over to base, and then there was another one out toward Wickenburg, and these things were just hovering. They were huge orbs, but it didn't, uh, it didn't make no sound or nothing. It was just hovering right, right there over to base. All of a sudden, I hear a lot of roaring coming out of the Luke Air Force Base, and here there's two fighters coming out, and they had the afterburners on because there were huge flames coming out the back of these things. ripped right around the back of me and shot right for those things. And then it disappeared on them and it was just gone. The military says the lights over Arizona last night were flares, but the people who saw the lights last night say they couldn't have been flares. In central Phoenix, in what is known as the Sunny Slope area, the Lay family were coming home in the early evening to watch for the Hale-Bopp Comet when they witnessed a very large craft fly directly over their house. You know, because when the craft went over, I really focused on the light. The tip was right out in the street, and the arm is going by, and the end of the arm was at least to that mountain over there. It was six, 700 feet away, with these huge lights set inside of it. And I look inside, and it's like... It's wavy. When you, when you look down the street on a hot day in Phoenix, uh -huh. above the streets, like, it's really wavy, and you see everything kind of distorted, uh -huh. and that's what it looks like up inside the middle of the craft. And it just skimmed by, didn't even make a sound, not even a sound. Further eyewitness testimony came from Stacy Rhodes and her daughter Emily, who both saw a giant craft fly over their car. It was gunmetal black. It wasn't shiny. It wasn't invisible it was more of a dull bluish black color and we both just stayed there and looked at it for a couple minutes and it was completely silent 
Mike Fortson spotted the same craft from his backyard in Chandler, a suburb of Phoenix. When you're looking to the north towards Phoenix proper, the, the lights of the city of Phoenix and Tempe and Scottsdale and all these here will form a gray background. And this was a black object coming through a gray background. We had no problem whatsoever seeing this vehicle. We knew it wasn't really ours because it was just too doggone big. Matter of fact, uh, profoundly massive is a better way to describe it. We don't really have words in our language to describe something that large. It was huge. Councilwoman Frances Barwood was approached by a reporter who complained about the lack of response from local government regarding the sightings. What this reporter said was that they had gone to every level of government, including the city of Phoenix, and nobody would talk to them. That this object went from north of Prescott and called in all the way down to Tucson, and then was also seen in Wickenburg and uh, nobody would give them any answer. They either told them that they were not going to talk about it at all or that um, there was nothing, that nothing happened. Responding to mounting pressure from his constituents, Governor Fife Symington held a press conference. Oh, I'm going to order a uh, full you know, investigation of this through DPS. We're going to make all the necessary inquiries and we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going to find out if it was a UFO. Later that day, Governor Symington held an unscheduled live press conference to announce that they had discovered the source behind the Phoenix lights. And now I'll ask Officer Stein and his colleagues to escort the accused into the room so that we may all look upon the guilty party. <laughs> and this just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. Well, I think everybody pretty much laughed at it. I thought it was really disgusting. He was just dismissing everything that these people had seen and said just like we're all looney tunes i just thought that was a really improper attitude for somebody in his position nobody in state local federal military nobody wanted to talk about it um, they didn't want to interview witnesses they said it didn't happen they said it didn't concern them uh, there was one councilwoman francis barwood she's the one that, that spoke up and said why don't we investigate and then when it came time for her election, she lost. And, and the, the press, the media, everybody else was really trashing her bad. And in 1997, we had the Mexico City Skyline UFO, of course in Mexico. And here an amateur with a digital camera captured footage of a UFO passing behind and above several buildings, as this next interview shows. Now, for the first time in its entirety, you are seeing the Mexico City saucer just as we first saw it. We haven't enhanced or manipulated the footage, and we haven't removed anything. Translation is being withheld because of the nature of the language used. Let's just say the shooter and his friend are very excited. In order to get to the bottom of the incredible flying saucer footage, we went to the exact location where the saucer had supposedly been hovering. We were looking for answers, for eyewitnesses, anyone who may have had a part in the mysterious sighting on that day. Anyone, that is, who would be willing to talk about it. And at least I found the place. This is real, the, the place exists, the buildings. And then I found no one witness, but 12 witnesses. Some of them who were just under the object, others who saw it far away, others who saw, didn't see the object, but remember that their animals went absolutely crazy that same day. You presented this video. You presented the video at first without knowing where it was 
Why? Because you want to flush people out? You wanted people to come out and say, hey, yeah, I know where this is? Exactly, and it happened just one day after. It worked. And for me it was very important because I say, I found the place, the physical existed. This was not a photographical trick. One eyewitness to the August 6, 1997 saucer was 13-year-old Cassandra. Can you show me where you were standing when you saw it? ¿Podrías decirle dónde lo viste cuando estabas parada? It was in the middle of those two buildings. I was scared. Was it wobbling, floating? At first it was still, but was wobbling. Then after it balanced, it shot out toward the corner of the buildings, and then it disappeared. As our interview progressed, Cassandra told us that the object had been spinning, and that she thought she saw windows. She also revealed that right after the sighting, she told her father about the UFO, but he had not believed her. We have found 12 witnesses. If we, could, if we want to look for more, we could find more. We continued to look. We questioned those familiar with the area where the saucer had apparently been taped. We looked from every possible point of view. We heard that there had been a sighting about a mile north in the wealthy suburb of Bosques Las Lomas. There we met Annie Lask a young woman who had been on the roof of her house on August 6th and she told us the saucer in the video had hovered directly over her and how high above you was it? like 20 meters the outer rim was spinning really fast and the hissing when I realized it was this weird thing on top of my head I wanted to take a picture and I turned to take the picture I turned up and it wasn't there and but there was like this mist like purple mist or maybe haze. After the saucer left her, standing in a purple staticky haze, Annie Lask does not remember getting down from the roof. Since that day, I had constant headaches, like every day. Like really strong headaches. My eyes burned so bad. They still and, do? Yes. Since that day. Allison Holloway interviewed David Froning, who is a propulsion engineer and 30-year veteran of McDonnell Douglas. What's your best guess? what this is i think it's an intelligently controlled craft it looks like it's it's being propelled by what we call field propulsion a propulsion or a mode of impulsion which we ourselves have not fully developed yet what if the pilots of this ship realized when the person shooting the video had them locked on holy smoke somebody can see us now and they revved up their engines got out of there. And in 1998 we had the Somerset incidents in the UK and here an amazing sighting of a UFO was videotaped in Somerset with amazing results as seen in this next video. In the southwest of England just outside Somerset there was another sighting. It was captured on videotape. Got it. Got it. Yeah I think it's coming this way. Yeah. Yeah I can see it. Is it? It is. That's amazing. The UFO that you saw um, originally was spotted approximately about 200 yards to the left of the aerial mast. And I suppose it was probably at about 500 feet up. It was very low in right. the sky. And this is a radio communications tower? This is tower a radio sort? communications. Uh, they've got three military masts on there. And uh, it sends out, one is a navigational 
signal which is used for aircraft. The other two aerials are, are near the top, we're not quite sure, but uh, there is a pulsed frequency that comes from them. The actual UFO, uh, from the time it was first seen by Rod Dickinson, who did the filming, uh, it lasted approximately 12 minutes, so it was uh, quite a long period of time for a daylight sighting to occur. We took this tape to be analyzed by Lucasfilm's Special Effects Division, Industrial Light and Magic, in San Rafael, California. Here we met with Bill George, an Academy Award-winning visual effects supervisor. Over the last 20 years, his special effects have been featured in films like Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. The, the optical zoom certainly would... He analyzed this footage to determine its authenticity. But there are several things that I see when the footage is running that, that tells me this was actually there when this was filmed. First of all, it's the shake. Okay. The shake. If, if you were to give me a background plate of just the sky and say, we want you to take this image of a flying saucer and match it in, that's something that's technically very difficult to do because you would have to match, putting the two elements together, you would have to match the shake. Now, certainly we have computers that can track that, but this is just, this is all over the map. A couple other cues that tell me that this is actually there when it was being filmed was that it's going in and out of focus with the background because the camera is trying to compensate and trying to focus, it's probably have some sort of autofocus. So the background is going in and out of focus along with the object. There are these dark things flying through frame, and if someone was to have to put that in there, they would have to composite it in behind the birds. It's a, it would be a technical problem. 2000, we had the Southern Illinois UFO. Between 4 and 7 a.m., six people, including police officers, observed a large triangular object a few hundred feet over St. Clair County in Illinois. The object glided silently and slowly to the southwest over several small towns before vanishing near the town of Dupo. The object, studded with several bright lights, was as tall as a two-story house and as long as a football field, as this actual 9-11 distress call reveals. At the regional 911 center located in Belleville, all conversations are recorded. This tape begins with a radio dispatch from 911 operator Tina Joaquin. It was someone just received a call from Highland PD. Reference to a truck driver just stopped in and said there was a flying object in the area of Lebanon. It was like a two-story house. It had white lights and red blinking lights, and it was last seen southwest over Lebanon. Leslie, could you check the area? An officer on patrol in the city of Lebanon, Illinois, responded to the dispatcher's query. Did they say if the truck driver was uh, DUI or anything? He said he was serious. Just a quick question. If I happen to find it, what am I supposed to do with it? After searching for two minutes, the officer radioed the dispatcher. Hey, be advised, there's a very bright white light east of town, and it keeps changing colors. I'll go there and see if maybe it's an aircraft. It doesn't look like an aircraft, though. But that's affirmative. Not the moon, it's not a star. You would, would you contact Scott Air Force Base to see if they have anything flying in this area, please? Well, whether it's a plane or not, it's heading westbound now. Matter of fact, if a shadow officer looks up, they can probably see it by now. 
six miles southwest, a call came from another police officer, this time in Shiloh, Illinois. 13 miles southwest in Milstadt, another police witness reported a similar sighting. Syncom 6004. Go ahead. I've got that object inside also. Are you serious? It's huge. Does it look like a... What does it look like to you? It's kind of V-shaped. Moments later, a fourth police witness, an officer from Dupo, Illinois, contacted the dispatcher. Our first thing, I open eye, you can see the different colors now, it appears to be white. Very large. It's hard to tell, it's pretty far off in the distance. This object was above me about 500 feet, and it was huge. There were no more calls to the dispatcher. Whatever it was, if indeed there was anything, vanished into the night skies over Illinois. But police are trained to be reliable observers, and four different officers from four different departments all reported seeing something that they could not explain. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay. The, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal, okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain, and how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. 
And Jesus says, if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says, uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please. Take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702 452 8599. 
or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com, or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.